Welcome to Joy Sounds, music you need to know, presenting the brightest emerging and breaking artists. This podcast is about who's next and who you will want to follow. And who knows, you might discover your next favorite artist. Here's your host, Chris Sampson. Hello, and welcome to Joy Sounds, music you need to know. I hope everybody is hanging in there. On today's episode, we feature an intriguing band from New York, Bright Dog Red. Bright Dog Red is making it up as they go along. Literally. All of their music is created in the moment through free improvisation. But to call it jazz wouldn't be accurate. Spearheaded by drummer Joe Pignato, this collective of musicians brings together multiple styles including hip-hop, electronica, psychedelia, and noise into a spontaneous soundscape. Their newly released album on Rope-A-Dope Records titled Something Comes Along is a double CD set that takes the listener on a journey through their spur-of-the-moment creative process. During today's show, we'll talk with Joe and sax player Eric Person and hear three tracks from the new record. We'll hear Something Comes Along, Dag Nabbit, and Sharper Than a Thumbtack. So let's begin today's show with the title track from the new record. This is Something Comes Along by Bright Dog Red on Joy Sounds. Thank you. 
Dog Red performing Something Comes Along, the title track off their new record. It is my pleasure to welcome to Joy Sounds, founding member of Bright Dog Red, Joe Pignato. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? I'm well, Chris. It's great to be here with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. First, I just want to offer my congratulations on the new record. Congratulations. Thank you. It means a lot to us to have a, you know, a third album out. It's a kind of body of work for a group that is kind of out there, that is a little bit unusual. So that's very gratifying. Yeah, I bet. You guys are with Rope-A-Dope Records. That's correct. I got to give them props for taking a band like you guys on. That's adventurous of a a record label. That must feel great to get that kind of support. Rope-A-Dope is a phenomenal partner for us. And when I first reach out to them, which was uh, maybe four or five years ago, you know, with the idea that it would be great for us to have a label partner. And I was using that term. And I guess after many uh, email communications and sending audio files of, you know, what we were working on, 
uh, the CEO of the label, Lewis Marx, responded. And, and the thing he liked the most was the, the fact that I was using the term partner. Because, you know, they get a lot of people that submit things who are looking for them to take it over and do everything. And what's great about Ropadope is they basically partner with you and, and, and work on promoting your work across all of their various media, uh, but also connecting you and plugging you into community of like-minded musicians. So for them to commit to something as really specific as what we do was an affirmation. And they've been great partners ever since. Let's get to this band, because this is an intriguing band. The way it's structured, your sound, your approach. But I want to know how this whole thing began. Was this your brainchild? Yeah, but with some heavy influence from some great teachers that I had. So, for example, I, as an undergraduate, studied with the drummer Max Roach. He was my drum teacher, oh, but also... my goodness. I had no idea that you had that kind of pedigree. That's That's really amazing. Yeah, and it was amazing to study with him. And like a lot of young people, you know, both you and I teach, I was at that stage where I was really mimicking people rather than playing. And Max was pretty critical of that right off the bat. And he (laughs) said, you know, what's important to you? What are the what are the musical genres? Who are the artists you like the most? And basically, my lessons went from drumming lessons to kind of an interview. He wanted to know my whole life background. And when he felt like he understood it, he said, that's what you should be doing. Ah. You should be putting all those things together. So that got me thinking. And then he referred me to Youssef Latif, who I studied composition with. And I studied with Youssef Latif for an extended period of time. And I noticed in him this real dissatisfaction with the notion of genre. Of course, he was aware of what genre was. He understood the difference between different types of music. But the preoccupation that some, certainly some of his students, but other musicians and also the industry had with genre and categorizing things, he felt was a hindrance to creativity. So I thought, you know, when was I happiest as a musician? It was working with Youssef Latif in his big band, where we would play big band music occasionally, but we'd also play music that had nothing to do with big band because somebody had an idea or somebody just threw out a suggestion or we just were having a jam session. And I thought, you know, I would like to do something like that with my students if I'm ever teaching. And so jump to the present, you know, I've been teaching at um, State University of New York in Oneonta for uh, over 15 years. And when I first got there, I started doing jam sessions with students who were in my ensembles. They would all come from different backgrounds, you know, who was a really into hip-hop, who was a rock guitarist who played piano uh, in a jazz group, they could never find common ground. So I would say, well, you know, let's let's not look for common ground. Let's just play. Let's just start to make sounds and see where it leads us. And we recorded all these sessions. And, you know, we'd listen back to them. And I'd say about 60 or 70 percent was really interesting. (laughs) 30 30 percent was noodling. There's some clams in there. Yeah, of course. But there was enough there that it's like, oh, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. So I would take it and I'd kind of edit it down. And I'd give everybody at the jam session a CD. It was was still, of course, there was digital distribution, but the bandwidth for most of the students wasn't that great for it. So I'd give them each a CD. And it became like a tradition. I would do it a couple times a semester, uh, either at the school or at my house. So that was the genesis of the group. And we started referring to these sessions as the Bright Dog Red sessions. That name just stuck and it stayed with me. And there was one participant in those sessions who used to say, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you got like, a couple of players to do this over time rather than just a few times during their time as a college student? Like, what if they work with you in a band situation and you, you try to book gigs? And I was like, yeah, that could be interesting. So that was the genesis of the band was 
those jam sessions, discussions with that student in particular and other students about the idea of what, what would it sound like, what would it become if we did it regularly uh, and tr sort of built a rapport that would make maybe 60% of the music go to 65 or 70% sounding good. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Especially if you start having these regular cast members and a chemistry develops. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the more you play together, the more you get to know each other, the more you understand the preferences that each player has. And, and the kind of like genres that we mix are the genres that I love the most. So there's jazz, there's free improvisation, there's hip hop electronica, psychedelic rock, a little bit of noise and, and avant-garde kind of electronica mixed in there. I'm about to say, and they're all in the one song, <laughs> all of those influences. It's, it's amazing. I can hear everything that you just said was an influence, evident in almost every song that I hear from you guys. That's cool. I do want to talk about your creative process because this is a fully improvisational collective. How do you start this? Do you just start playing? Is there a concept that's thrown out? Where do you guys begin? Yeah, so we started in those jam sessions with me saying just play to basically settle friendly disputes. <laughs> do, you know, do you know this tune? No, I don't. Do you know that tune? Have you ever used, use, you know, do you, somebody uses the real book? I don't know what the real book is, somebody else says. <laughs> so to settle those disputes, I just say, let's just play. And so the origins of the band were in that. And as it became more of a, a tight knit sort of repeating ensemble where, where there were a lot of repeat members and I had the idea to start taking it out for gigs, I would give some direction in the beginning. I might give a concept, like you said, like, a, you know, let's start with some space. But the concepts were really simple like that. Let's mm. start with some space. Um, and that's because part of it reflects my pedagogical approach when I'm teaching creative music. Right? If I'm teaching somebody something that they need to do or need to know for a specific gig, it's one approach. But if they're doing creative music, their own original music, I, I, I like to um, avoid imposing too much of my own on them. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm purposefully ambiguous. So some of that ambiguity was how I would direct this band. So I might say, let's, let's have some space. Tony, the bass player, you're going to start us with a lullaby. Okay. You know, he, he'd look at me from his base like, like a real lullaby or, or should I make one up? I'm like, you should make it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it gives gives the players a point of reference, all right? You know, if it's a lullaby, it's going to be a simple diatonic melody. It's going to be accessible. Maybe it's going to be a little slower. It's going to be peaceful and easy. But I know that if he starts with that, then maybe the electronic musician uh, might start to come in with some ambient stuff. In other words, the direction that we start in might drive the other players to go not in the same direction, but in a slightly more unified direction with mm -hmm. all the different tentacles that this group has. And then we just listen and see where it goes from there. There are other times where I'm a little bit more specific, and, and that'll depend on, on where we're playing. If we're playing in our studio, then I tend to be pretty ambiguous and just say, let's play, let's see where it goes. It's going to develop over the next two or three hours. But if we go do like we got booked once to do a festival gig where we were that we, we didn't know this, we were the headliners. So we show up. <laughs> and we're in a town square on the back of a truck with a band shell. And there's like, you know, people with their babies and kids and in lawn chairs. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're looking out there thinking, hmm, do, do they know who they booked? Because <laughs> this, this could be dicey. Um, but it would be, you know, it would be unfair of us uh, and, and disingenuous, actually, if we got up there and played the way we normally play. We have to acknowledge that the audience, if they're not expecting what we do, we don't, we can't give them what they're expecting because we don't know that either. But we can say, okay, it's a festival. 
let's play very rhythmic. Let's try to be, let's explore melody here. We've got a lead instrument, maybe on that gig, maybe there was a guitarist or the rapper that we had at that time was very melodic. And, you know, I'd say to him, his name was Cully. Cully, you know, use your voice in a melodic fashion, kind of get the audience into it. And we, we had a tremendous success at that festival. We're in, invited back the next year and it went really well. And, you know, part of that was the willingness and the open-mindedness of the crowd, but it was also saying, okay, we have to, we have to bring the concept a little bit in, in closer to Got it. a fewer, you know, fewer set of possibilities rather than all the things we might do if we're playing like Shapeshifter Lab in Brooklyn where we can really stretch and do our thing. That sounds terrifying to me, you know, to find yourself on a stage with people staring at you and you're kind of figuring it out. Does it feel like risk-taking? Does it feel like you're kind of like walking up to the ledge a little bit? It feels very much like risk-taking, even in a place like a shapeshifter lab where we played regularly and the audience is expecting adventurous music. I say something to the effect before every set, I'll say, we're really excited to play for you tonight. If you're wondering what we sound like, so are we. Um, and we appreciate you coming along for the ride as we all find out or something to that effect. And I say that before every gig, because I want people to know that it's going to be, there's going to be a process of searching and seeking. And in that process, they stay with us. There'll be those moments where, and we see it where the audience really responds. Doing it live is one thing. Capturing it on a record it's got to be completely different. Are you attempting to recreate these songs later, or is that it? Are we just there to appreciate what happened in the moment in the studio? So our intent is what you just described. Okay. We want a moment in the studio that we capture. And there's two things that come to mind. The first is what I said earlier about, you know, those initial sessions. You know, maybe 50 or 60% of it sounded good. Uh, the same is true now. We'll play... Even with the rapport we have, we'll play for three hours. This album is two hours worth of music, and there's about three hours and 15 minutes of sessions. So the yield of two-thirds of the material is, I think, a really good yield. We record the album in three different sessions. So there's different players at those sessions. Maybe I place the mics a little differently. So there's a lot of post-production to make it sound cohesive. Interestingly, when we play out... Uh, people who've seen us, they often say, you know, I feel like I'm hearing the music that's on the album, even though I know I'm not. There's there's oh. a continuity to what you do. And I think it's because we're, there's enough repeat players in the group. You know, it is a rotating cast, but there's always, if there's seven people on the bandstand, maybe four are regular members, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes as many as five or six. And so they know what it is we do. They know how we work. We have our own tendencies and genres that we like. So there's some continuity there. I'd love to hear another tune from you guys off the new record. And the next one uh, that we're going to feature is called Dag Nabbit. Yeah, so the, the backstory for us in terms of titles comes from... Uh, Two places. Sometimes it's something from my mind that the sound of the music evokes. Uh, and then more often than not, it's something from whoever the poet or MC is on the album. It'll be something from one of their poems. So in this case, it's Matt, Matt Coonan, who's the rapper on that track. His, uh, his verses start with him saying Dag Nabbit, kind of in this curmudgeonly uh, old manish sort of way. Uh, and that just stuck with me as 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 comical and troubling at the same time. <laughs> uh, and so um, and it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a funny and also dark lyric, uh, you know, uh, sort of both sides of the coin. So that's how that title came about. 
So this is off of their new record, Something Comes Along. This is Dag Nabbit by Bright Dog Red, here on Joy Sounds. I'm a thumping jack rabbit, jumping out the hat, beating batted like bad magic. I'm back at it, spit up rappers like asthmatics. My words stick under your nerves like mad maggots, and I'm pragmatic. Backpack in a fat casket. I crawl up out of mine wearing khakis and track jackets, haphazardly harboring my tragedies. And I ain't been the same since they stopped serving me daiquiris at Applebee's. I'm happily spitting through catastrophes with ease. Yo, I actually got my master's degree in eating cheese. I'm talking cheddar, mozzarella, gouda, gorgonzola. I'm sipping cola, flipping doja through this Motorola. Yeah, I got the real composure of a wildebeest. With resilient feet stomping through one billion beats I think I just hit my millionth peak They want beef, so I season them Then toss them on the grill and eat Dag nabbit, I need to kick these bad habits Dag nabbit, just need to kick these bad habits But in the meantime, I'll kick this mean rhyme And I may seem fine, but I'm really not
And that was Bright Dog Red performing Dagnabbit off of their new record. You're absolutely right. There's there's a there's a music to that phrase Dagnabbit that you kind of it sounds like the whole band seized on a little bit. Now we're joined by another member of Bright Dog Red, Eric Person, who uh, sax player, winds player for the band. Welcome, man. Nice to have you. Good to be here. Joe was talking to me about this rotating sort of regular cast members which I think has to be kind of a positive and a challenge at the same time. Sometimes this can make for interesting sessions because some people might not be available for that particular session. Well, Dagnabbit's a good song actually to illustrate that because the core foundational tracks were done in an improvisation. And you know, I don't think Eric was there for that, but then Eric was at the second session. So the next tune we're gonna listen to, Eric was at the live session, but some other people weren't there. And so it's just like what would happen in the course of a set where the band is morphing even in the course of a set. For me, as as the producer, you know, after we do the live sessions at my place, after everyone goes home, I'll sit down and I'll just listen to what we came up with and I'll say, all right, who wasn't here? And then the next question is, what could they bring to the track? In, in some cases, they certainly could bring something to the track, but they don't need to. In other words, they might be well represented across the album. And so one of the things with the double album that I had to really think about was like, you know, where, where should it be Eric and Mike, the other saxophonist together? Where should it be that one or the other one? Or where should it just be like there's one beautiful track that features just Eric's flute and the bass player and Cody, the electronic musician. So some of the post-production is me just saying, well, those three sound great together. I'm not adding anything to this um, because it happened in the moment. Or there might be something like there's a track called Red Snapper that the way it is on the album is basically the way it was done live, except we had Eric add his flute in after the fact. And so Eric, be interesting for me to hear, like, what's your experience coming in when you added those tracks we had a great session. We stayed up really late one night at my place and mm-hmm. listened to all the different tracks and did his magic uh, on sopranino, soprano, flute, even playing some kalimba on a track. What was that like for you to come in and add to those sessions that you weren't you weren't able to make? I mean, it was exciting. I mean, I I was just kind of you know I was down I was down in Joe's uh, basement and you know I was just kind of in between tracks, I just kind of walked around. And I saw the kalimba there and I started playing something. I said, hey man, this sounds pretty good. And so I think he, he might've turned on the track and then I just started adding it and it just really just worked out great. You know, so he could have had any kind of drum or any instrument. If I, if I had got that inspiration, I would, I would have just been, hey man, you know, what about this, you know? Right. So that, that I kind of relish in that because I've done a lot of, um, recording you know my own and and i've always kind of had that open framework to kind of add whatever i i went with in the moment you know so is there a level of body language a sort of communication that's going on that helps with that level of composition um because my guess is that you got to take some visual cues um, yeah. from each other to have that kind of development. Uh, it, it, am I assuming this correct? I think eye contact is the the most basic form of communication that we get into. I mean, I'm always looking at the other other musicians on stage. I know I know some some people have actually come up to me on different gigs and say, you know what I like about this or your band or whatever is that you guys look at each other, you guys smile, you look at each other. And, and, and some musicians, they don't do that. So it works for this band and with all the personalities, you know, we like each other. So when we get on stage, you know, 
it might be a, a very simple pointing at somebody, you know, you you know, you blow or you start this, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know with me and Mike, the other tenor player, I might just, you know, flick my horn up and be like, hey, man, let's do that same line we did before, you know, something like that. So, you know, the visual element is, is for me is the most basic and we utilize that to the hill. Eric's got a great look on his face when he's really into it, when he's really, really into it and he's hearing what's going on. And he'll sort of cock his head and look back at me or look over at Mike. And a a lot happens in that look. Like we all know then, okay, either what we're doing is happening and it feels good and we're going to sit on it, or we know it's time to move along. What I love about having Eric in the band, and this turns out it's actually true about all the players, but Eric is a beautiful composer. You, You know, People should check out his music. He's a beautiful composer and band leader. So he brings uh, a lot of experience to the group that makes my job leading from behind the kit easier. Being that I'm a composer, he's a composer, Mike writes music, Cody writes music. We all write in different Mm -hmm. areas, but we all have that kind of compositional background. So I think that's why some of the the kind of development stuff is happening and then one thing about that's great about eric and also tony the bass player and tyreek who plays guitar and electric bass is those three musicians are really tuned in to my drumming and so when i change the drum beat or change the time feel they not only follow me but they also hear it as okay let's kind of move into a b section if there's going to be a b section or or at least something different from what we were doing the vamp Mm -hmm. that we're on or, or the riff that we're on Joe was telling me earlier that he is not heavy-handed when it comes to direction, you know, to start things off. As a matter of fact, he was saying that he gives some rather ambiguous kind of cues, like, let's start with some space. And I'm wondering, you know, what's your process to interpret that kind of direction? I really don't have any expectations when it comes to, yeah, because, I mean, the reason I say that is because if this was my band, like, and we were doing the same thing, I'd probably be consciously trying to guide it where, where I hear that the music, where I feel that the music needs to go. And some of that has to do with like, like what you mentioned, like a certain kind of compositional kind of uh, framework I'm thinking of, you know, and also just how I want to build the set, you know, like, oh, we did something kind of medium, let's do something up now, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, but in this band, because I kind of, Joe was saying, like, we're all composers, not only in the moment, but we also have our own projects. I, I just kind of lay back a little bit and, and I'm I'm open to, you know, how this guy might um, feel like taking the music. And uh, I'm always surprised by certain things. So that that to me, I'm surprised. So it makes surprises, you know. Right. If you come with expectations, then you start boxing the music in. And I think that's totally the opposite of what we're trying to do. So I'm always lit looking for music to give me to give me chills. So if it goes in that place where I'm thinking like, oh, we're like really out on the ledge, you know, and it's like some really surprising stuff. People, obviously, they don't know where it's going, but it, it, it makes it where it's like, oh, yeah, we're going into some really unknown ter- territory to me. That's mission accomplished, you know. That's why I love having Eric in the band because he gets it. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Chris, that there's risk here, but uh, everybody's confident enough and has played enough that we're okay with the risk. And there are times where it's not working, where it's not happening. And then we, we'll, we'll work away from that and look for what is happening. But when it comes together, it's absolutely surprising to all of us. Like on the track that you're going to play in a little bit, Sharper Than a Thumbtack, 
those saxophone lines with, um, and also on the first track, there's a lot of sax work with the two saxophones together. It was the first session that they had ever played together, and they did that live in my basement. And it was mm -hmm. a lot of Eric playing a line, signaling to Mike, Mike picking up on the line, or Mike playing a line and Eric picking up on that line, and then they would come together, and bam, the figures would be there, and suddenly you'd have a horn part out of, you know, come out of nothing. And, and those... Mm -hmm. Those moments, you could see everybody in that one session. That was the December session. You mm -hmm. could see it. Everybody felt really good. Uh, we, we knew we had material. The thing I've actually been thinking about, and I haven't even said this to you, Joe, but I've been thinking like, okay, what are we going to do to top this? You know, uh, what are we going to do to take a, a turn where it's like, okay, they actually did this and they did two CDs. They gave, they gave us a lot. So how, what are we going to do on the next CD that's going to like not repeat this, but it's like a new chapter because each record is a each CD is a chapter in a sense, you know, sure. like a book. So what's, what's going to define the next CD being a new, a new chapter instead of like being like a, a B of the last. Minute? You're taking over my job. That'd be a great question to ask you guys. <laughs> you know? So, hey, Joe, what's your next chapter? How do you top <laughs> this new record? Something comes along. Yeah, well, I'll just say uh, Eric knows that I'm always thinking, and the plans for the next thing are very much uh, in the works. I, uh -oh. I will say that COVID kind of changed the plans for the next thing, but uh, I can talk in some general terms um, and say that one, one of the things I think would be really great for this band is to make a live record where the yeah. post-production and the creation of the tracks becomes much less of a focus and mm -hmm. capturing really the best parts of live sets on a yep. short tour would be wonderful. There was some movement on bringing us to the West Coast, obviously shut down with COVID, but hopefully we can resume those discussions when that clears. Without saying specifically who or what, there's also some discussion about working with, this could be for a fourth or a fifth album, because there's the idea of doing something live, but it'd be great for us to work with, and we have some interest from some pretty uh, well-established producers uh, who would work with us uh, almost as an additional member of the group. So we could track the way we normally do. Instead of me doing all the post-production, we'd simply send all the stems to that producer and that individual would then create an album from our improvisations. And there's two producers with whom I've had some pretty serious discussions with. So, yeah, if, if either one of those things happens, I think it would be a, a good next step, a good next chapter, to use that phrase. I really like that idea. Uh, and it would distinguish itself from the first three albums. Well, thank you so much. This has been Joe Pignato and Eric Person from Bright Dog Red. We're going to wrap up today's episode with another track from their new record, Something Comes Along. This is called Sharper Than a Thumbtack. Joe, Eric, thank you so much. It's great to hear about the band. We can't wait to, to see this next chapter. So we're really looking forward to it. Thank, thank you, Chris. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot. So this is Sharper Than a Thumbtack by Bright Dog Red on Joy Sounds.
Bring it back, bring it back now. Sharper than a thumbtack and a skin. Been a minute, but I'm back on the tag now. With a little bit of jack and a grin. Get the bitter, cause I'm back and I'm in. Back to the wall, yeah, I'm back for the win. You can get smacked up with a lyrical backhand. Look at me, the satirical madman. Back when I was a wanna BMC. Really thought it could be bigger than my DMC, yeah, EPMD. An live boy with a dream to blow, just like TNT. But no, no, never did a detonate. I was much better at laying in bed awake all day. And all night battling demons. Started feeling like Adam and Eve did. Took a trip to the Big Apple with a pocket full of cash and a demo tape. Got a couple hundred views of a video play. I'ma get signed by Diddy and Jay, but no way. Got a fat chance in hell, nah. That suburbia won't sell, and your verbiage ain't that clear. You better off with another career, so I gave up. More school, got a job, all cool, but I really miss having an outlet. Didn't really care what the money or the fame of the clout did. They doubt it, but I picked up the mic again. These balls on my balls are biking, didn't rip another rap till I break the thing. Yeah, ripping on up till I break the thing. Come on. to subscribe and follow joy sounds wherever you listen to podcasts also follow us on all social media platforms using the handle at joy sounds music are you an artist who would like to be on the show visit the contact page of our website at joysoundsmusic.com for more information until next time this is joy sounds music you need to know